I don't know if you remember the Marlboro Man or not. If I said to you, Marlboro Man, what would that be? Uh, what would you think of? What would be conjured up in your mind? The Marlboro Man. Actually, Philip Morris Company in 1924 started that brand as a woman's cigarette. Like a Virginia Slim's. They didn't sell that many to ladies and they thought they would try to popularize Marlboro. And so in the 50s, people were realizing cigarette smoke was damaging. So they put something on the end of the cigarette called a filter. But they were afraid men wouldn't smoke filtered cigarettes because only ladies were smoking filtered cigarettes. And so they thought, let's have a marketing idea and we're going to have the Marlboro Man and in 1949, the issue of Life magazine, Marlboro Man, came out and, and their market share just skyrocketed. Eventually, they were the number one cigarette in the world. Fascinatingly, um, sadly, uh, Marlboro Men, the first four, Wayne McLaren, David McLean, Dick Hammer, and Eric Lawson, all died of smoking-related diseases. And they were known, Marlboros were then, because of that, cowboy killers. Marlboro man. We can do things on our own. Rugged individualism. We stand for ourselves. Marlboro man. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5 to try to disavow you from any kind of thought that we stand alone in this world. We have solidarity with others, corporate solidarity. And this is the way God thinks of things. My kids, I have four of them, and they always laugh at me when I try to show them a life hack. This is the new way to cut a watermelon so you don't get the watermelon to go on your face. You know, this half moon, circular, half circle watermelon, you have to cut it a certain way. Look at this cool life hack. And the, the kids will say, Dad, you've been on the internet again looking up life hacks. I'm like, yeah, I like life hacks. I'm going to give you a theological life hack today in Romans chapter 5. And I kid you not, this passage in Romans 5, 12 and following, has done more to revolutionize my thinking about Jesus Christ and his gospel than any other passage in the Bible. I learned a lot at seminary, but about seven years ago studying this doctrine, all kinds of things in my mind changed this is the passage. This is the passage where I remember Dr. Zimmick at seminary would say, if you have a Bible and, and you aren't ungodly having an iPad or something like that, this is where you put the crease in Romans 5 because if you are a theologian at all, when you open your Bible, it opens right there to Romans 5. This is it right here, Romans 5. There's no chapter in all the Bible like it and it teaches something about solidarity and corporate Living, corporate, thinking, how God thinks about people. So what we'll do is, let me read to you Romans 5, 1 through 11, to set the context. In the flow of Romans, here's what's happened so far. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, people have no righteousness. We've talked about that a little bit. Whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, there's no righteousness that you have. You need the righteousness from someone else. Here's the need. Here's the problem. And so what's the solution? The solution was found in chapter 3, verse 21 and following. We were just looking that you can be justified through the non-meritorious instrument of faith 
alone. You can be declared righteous based on the righteous life of Christ, even though you're not righteous, because God treats Jesus as if he was not righteous, even though he is. And he treats you like you're righteous, declares you righteous, even though you're not. Justification confirmed by the resurrection. And then we move to chapter 4. How is anybody saved in the Old Testament? Answer, the same way they're saved in the New Testament. The same way they're saved today. Through faith. Abraham, circumcised first or believed first? So we understand that it is saved through faith. And now we come to the results of justification. How many people's Bibles say at the, right at the top of Romans 5.1, the results of justification? Is that what it says? ESV say that or just NES? What's ESV say? Peace with God. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the blessings flowing from justification, verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to look at the passage, verses 12 through 21. And they're related, so let's pick it up in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's not subjective. That's objective. That's We were at war with God and now we have peace because of Jesus. And it says right there, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Four. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God continually, present tense, shows His love, demonstrates His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. One man, Jesus, I know he's more than man, he's the God-man, but he was certainly fully man. One man, Jesus' work affects lots of people. What one man did has a, a, a fantastic effect on others. How can what one man did, what one man does rather, affect people? How can representative, the representative nature of Jesus be biblical? How does it work? Jesus does something for other people. Is that possible? And so we move to chapter 5, verses 12 and following. Paul is going to say what one man does affects other people. Let's talk about not Jesus for a minute, but let's talk about who? Adam. One man can affect others. You can be saved by the work of another, just as you could be lost by the work of another. And so that's going to be Romans 5, 12 and following. I have to say up front, this is tough language. Remember in um, 2 Peter 3, does not Peter say some of Paul's writings were 
kind of hard to get. Is that the Greek? I think this is, might be one of the passages he was talking about. But if you get it big picture today, and I know Pat has taught it, you'll say, now I understand it. That drives me to praise. What one man did affected many, and he did that for me. This all drives to Romans chapter 11. Where does Romans 5 take us? Don't forget, it takes us all the way to chapter 11, where Paul just kind of like shouts out praise and blessings and honor to this God who is wonderful. So don't think this has just come kind of some kind of dry theological barb. There's a way and a direction that it's driving us, and that is to praise maybe my most favorite Bible verses that exist. Two federal heads that affect other people. Federal representation, it's not innovative, it's not novel, it's not new, it's not made up by Paul. Adam was a federal head as well. Let's just take a look. We're going to walk through this a little bit and then look at the implications. The lie that I'm trying to deal with is one person affects his own destiny and you live and die alone versus a solidarity between federal representatives. Therefore, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. How can the well-doing of Jesus affect so many people? That's what Paul is going to answer here. And he's going to contrast Solidarity. What Adam did negatively affected people. So what Jesus does positively as the last Adam, it can also affect people. Now here's what happens. We focus in on Adam and those two words, because all sinned. What does it mean, all sinned? What's going on? And what I'm going to tell you ahead of time is Adam was not a private person. Has anybody heard the Puritans call Adam a public person? Adam is a public person. And actually, back in the Puritans' day, they used to spell it P-U-B-L-I-K. He's a public person. Adam didn't represent himself privately. He was public. And what he did affected people. He was their legal agent. He stood in their stead. He was their federal representative. And the battleground is between those words, all sin. What does it mean, all sin? Let me give you some options. The Pelagians think this way. Adam sinned, and by his bad example, we are born into the world, and we follow his bad example, and then we sin. What does it mean when all sin? The Pelagians would say, we follow the bad example of Adam. But here's the problem. When we think about the other representative, Jesus, can you get saved by following Jesus' good example? No. So that's not going to work out. There's going to be some, some, some symmetrical ideas there. Adam, bad example. We're born neutral in the world. We follow his bad example. Then we all sin. But that can't be because we know parts of Scripture would teach opposite, but also Jesus' good example cannot lead you to eternal life. There's another way that people think of it, and they like to think of it as the realistic view. 
may be known as seminal headship. You and I were really there in the garden sinning with Adam in some realistic way. Really there. Realistic really. And they use Hebrews 7 to talk about that a little bit. We're literally sinning along with Adam. Some kind of organic unity. But is that the way we're saved? Are we really in Christ with some kind of organic unity getting saved? No. And you said, man, this is all... This is all it's too hard for me to think about anyway. On a side note, one of the things I love about studying the Bible, don't we use big words in every other area of our life? You have a job, do you have big words, do you have acronyms? Anybody here work in the government? Okay. We have big words all the time. But you know, when it comes to theology, just make it monosyllabic, please. I just want easy. Just spoon feed me. And here's what I'll tell you as a side note. This is why I'm so proud of Pat and encouraged by the elders here. When you have a really deep trial, a really awful trial, a really horrendous trial, you don't need like little tiny ditties about Jesus. You need to be rooted in the faith, right? Big temptation, I need a bigger view of God. And that's exactly what's happening here in Romans. I'm not responsible for Adam's later sins. What's going on here? The best option is federal representation. Now, what do we mean by this? Adam's one act brought condemnation to all? Take a look at verse 15. Notice singular here. We're not talking about Adam's sins. We're talking about Adam's first sin. Let's just take a scan and you can see and it's going to come together as we move forward. Let's see, how can I illustrate it? Uh, Polaroid pictures. Who here knows Polaroid pictures? Weren't they the best? You take the Polaroid, you sit there, you try to hurry it up, you're breathing on it, and you see the outline, and then it's kind of black and white, and then all of a sudden you know it's color. That's the way this third session is going to work out today. My friend Wayne Bailey, by the way, we didn't know how to dress up for Halloween one year, and uh, so we went to the Salvation Army in Lincoln, Nebraska, and he bought 30 old Polaroid cameras that were obsolete because you couldn't buy film for them. And he taped them to his body, wrapped around, and instead of the mummy, he was the cameraman. Okay, what's that have to do with anything? Nothing. I'm just trying to keep you awake. I see you snoozing off because all sin. Here's what we're after. Remember, big picture. One man affects many. See, that rubs us the wrong way. Hey, I stand on my own two feet. I'm the Marlboro man. I'm the Virginia Slims lady. I mean, come on. What do you mean one man affects many? But how did it all work? And we're dealing with the one sin of Adam, the first sin. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, many died. Verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression. We're talking about Adam's first sin. Verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Verse 18. So then as through how many transgressions? His whole life of sin? No. One transgression. The first sin of Adam is credited to everyone's account, of course, except the Lord Jesus. When Adam sinned in the wisdom of God, in the manifold 
understanding of God, he took Adam's first sin and he credited it to your account. And you go, how can that happen? I don't understand. And what we're driving at is the effect of the one will affect many. The first sin of Adam's, not his others. You say, well, this kind of rubs me the wrong way. Well... Adam was told to tend the garden. He was tend to, told to obey. And Adam disobeyed. But God had Adam as your representative. And I'm here to tell you that when they bury you and put you in the ground, it will be because of Adam's first sin and then consequently the others. This Adam influenced other people. You say, I don't know if I like this life hack. Well, let me give you some federal headship concepts in the Bible. I'll just read them quickly. The curse of Canaan fell on all his posterity. Genesis 9. Exodus chapter 20. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's called representation. Achan's whole family died for his crime. Joshua. That's federal representation. All Israel suffered for David's sin. Representation. Leprosy that visited Gehazi passed on to his seed forever. Jesus said in Luke 11, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Corporate solidarity. No wonder when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I say, but still, federal representation? Uh, true or false? We live in a federal government. True or false, you have two senators in Nebraska. True or false, I don't know how to say the one guy's name. True. How do you say it? Benjamin uh, Sassy? Sassy? Sassy. No. Sass. Okay, sorry. All the Republicans said... Cause see, I'm from, I'm from Massachusetts, where all the Republicans are Democrats. I mean, you just have to know where I'm coming from. And Deb Fisher, correct? And what they decide... Does it affect you? You might not want it to, but it sure does. We live in a federal government. In 1941, when America declared war on Japan, there was a single dissenter in the U.S. Congress. Her name was Jeanette Rankin. But when the U.S. government declared war against Japan, the nation as a unit with binding implications for all meant that Jeanette Rankin went to war with Japan. Federal representation. But it pushes against our pride. But let me tell you a little something. One man, Adam, God has said his first sin is going to be credited to everybody else by federal representation. Can I just alleviate some of your fear and some of your, your anxiousness regarding that? Do you know at Calvary, do you know in the New Testament that one man's obedience is declared to, given to you as a federal represent, representation? Who likes federal representation? If it's only Adam, you're like, no, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. How can I get credit for it? But now I get credit for what Jesus did. It's coming to be a good, it's a good deal. You know what? As S. Lewis would say, when your daddy in Texas hits oil, everybody celebrates. And we hit a gusher in the Lord Jesus Christ. But early on, Paul's going to make it so you can't wiggle. God says, Adam sin, you get credit for like it or not, this is just, this is God's world. The unity of the many in the one. 
answering the question, how can Jesus, the one, save a lot of people? By imputation. The imputation of Adam's sin to all mankind as a federal representative by God's free will. And don't you find it fascinating? Take a look at verse 12 again. Through one man. We know he's talking to Adam. Don't you think the Jews are going to be saying, Abraham, 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 taking their eyes off of Abraham, going right back to the garden. One man affects many. How about this? The American Atheist Journal. Quote, Christianity has fought, still fights, and will fight science to the desperate end over evolution because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and original sin, and in the rubble you will find the very sorry remains of the Son of God. Listen, if Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing It's the battleground. Federal head Adam. And when Adam sinned, all hell broke loose. Imputation of Adam's sin to our account. It's kind of funny, but I I liked it. One man said, The sin of Adam was not found in the apple in the tree, but on the pear on the ground. But it's not true, because it wasn't found in the pear, it was found in Adam. When Eve sinned, nothing happened. But when Adam sinned, then here comes the curse. Reread Genesis chapter 3. S. Lewis Johnson, I'm happy that Adam was my representative, because if I had been my own representative, I know that I would have failed. If God would not have this representative arrangement, then we would have representative redeemer to come. No, I like God's arrangement. Think about the other options. You're born and as a baby you have to start obeying God from the get-go as a baby? How long would you last? Who here could do better than Adam did? He was mature. He was uh, uh, older. Charles Simeon said, If you wanted to be either judged in Adam or yourself, every thinking person would answer, I choose Adam. I want him as my representative. And what if Adam would have succeeded? We would be singing the doxology. Praise Adam from whom all blessings flow. Pat can sing better than I can. Duly noted. Hosea chapter 6. But they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. Adam transgressed the covenant and it affected everybody else. God took his sin, credited it to everybody else. If you don't like the word federal, you can say foitus, which in Latin means covenant. Angels, you sinned, you get no representative. Too bad for you, no hope of redemption. You say, I I, I need some more help with this. Verse 13. Verse 13. I have a question for you. Um, Why do babies die? Why do babies die? Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or charged when there's no law. Huh. Adam to Moses, there was no Mosaic law. There was no written law between Adam and Moses. True? Okay. So when people sinned, they weren't breaking the law of God. True? The the Mosaic law, at least you've got to grant me that. 
They weren't violating Mosaic law because there wasn't one. So what's the conclusion that Adam, that, that uh, Paul wants you to make? There was an earlier law that was broken and Adam broke it. John Murray, for nothing evinces the sin of all and the death of all and the sin of Adam more than the death of little infants. Why do babies die? They, they didn't break the law. They're not old enough to be able to break the law. And you say, well, they have a natural depravity. But that natural depravity came from what? Answer, the first sin of Adam imputed to their account. How else do you describe it? Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. How did all those people die? Young and old. Wages of sin is death. What, what about there's no Moses? Even over those sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who had a real law of God. Don't do this. Do that who was the type of the one who was to come. And even with that word type, you should be thinking to yourself, there's a resemblance between Adam and Jesus. A contrastive resemblance, but they're similar. They're ahead. They're a representative of the race. And on their conduct, so goes everyone else. For those of you that, uh, like Thomas Goodwin, maybe my all-time favorite quote, just because I never thought I would say this word preaching in my life or in public as much as I do, but I love to say this word now because I know what Thomas Goodwin means. All men hang on Adam's girdle. You ever think you'd have to say girdle from the pulpit? They're all hanging on Adam's girdle. In Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. No wonder people attack Adam. But here's the good thing. Jesus' death, Jesus' life, Jesus' resurrection is superior to Adam's sin. It's, it's more excellent. It's, it's more wonderful. It's greater. And here comes the contrast. And you have to make sure you see in verse 15, is not like. Verse 16, is not like. They are both representative heads representing other people, but Jesus' is better. Jesus' is more wonderful. And he makes the same point a variety of different ways. And we'll just go through this a little bit. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. The trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There's a difference with this parallelism. Jesus does more. Actually, Jesus removes the guilt of Adam and gives his righteousness to the believers. Adam just made everybody fall in him. Jesus says, I take away that sin and all sin and give them righteousness. That's why it talks about the grace of God abounding. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Much more. Do you see it right there in the middle of the verse? The action of Jesus, the action of our Lord, is greater than the action of Adam as a federal head. Verse 18. While Adam's sin snuffs out life, Jesus grants life. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
True or false? For the believer, Adam's act was the final determiner for your eternal life. The answer is no. It's the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Men are justified on the ground of imputed righteousness just as they're condemned by the work of the imputed sin of Adam. Acts of different degree, but acts of another. I don't know about you, makes my head burn. Where you're like, okay, maybe I know when, when Timothy was told that you studied to show yourself approved, this is hard going. But back up a little bit. Here's the picture. If this is what you get, this is the good start. Jesus justifies people. We have Jesus, the just and justifier. And what that one man did, he had so much righteousness, an infinite amount of righteousness because he's God, that he, as our representative, that's why he had to be fully human. What Jesus did affects all kinds of people. How can, how can that happen? How can there be a representative? And Paul says, Adam was a representative. But what Adam did negatively, Jesus does positively. What Adam did to people uh, across the globe, Jesus does for his bride. Now, when you look at this, if you're well taught, you ask this question in verse 18. What's this one act of righteousness? I thought it was all of Jesus' life. I didn't know it was just like the cross. We don't need his act of obedience. What does that mean in verse 18? One act of righteousness. Shriner says it's his whole life in view. I would agree with that. Cranfield said it's not just his atoning death, but his whole obedience. Robert Peterson, not Chris, although Chris likes this quote. I think I got it from him. Refers to his lifelong obedience with an emphasis on his becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Jesus' whole life of obedience is just kind of one big, uh, one big, uh, help me somebody. Uh, I was going to say clump, but that sounded really bad. <laughs> if you never say girdle, you never say clump. Jesus' clump of righteousness would go down poorly. I have different buttons on my uh, radio deal. My favorite one's probably the drop button. So if I have a caller and I want to get rid of him, drop. Oh, just drop the caller. I need a theological acumen, though, lever. The, right, so I'll quote Bavink. When all else fails, quote Bavink. The cross is the culmination of the whole life of obedience. There we go. Culmination better than clump, Todd? You okay? 102 miles yesterday. Now, how do you think through this? Remember I said it's driving to praise. What Adam did could be undone. Heidelberg Catechism. How are you righteous before God? I mean, you, you tell me this on my deathbed. How, how are you righteous before God? How do you stand before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart." I guess it'd be a good question to ask. Have you accepted this gift with a believing heart? 
Wouldn't it be a tragedy if somebody came to Omaha Bible Church for a conference on a Saturday and is not born again? By faith alone in the risen Savior. The trespass of Adam can be eradicated. You say, well, but what about the law? Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And then he goes and talks about how the law doesn't contradict that. You've got to have a righteousness to get into heaven. That's the book of Romans. We have no righteousness. You've got to have righteousness. And Jesus Christ provides righteousness for all who would believe. Is there any alternative? The answer is there's no alternative. He's the one that lives a perfect life. Can I give you a couple applications? Here's one. That if Jesus Christ's life is credited to your account and your sins are credited to Jesus' account, you can never lose your salvation. Anybody that says you can lose your salvation doesn't know anything about justification or propitiation for that matter or for the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Because when God sees you, He sees you as if you've perfectly obeyed the law. This doctrine says you can't lose your salvation. And by the way, if you could lose your salvation, you did. You will. You already did. You cannot have your salvation forfeited because your status before God can't change. I think we even sing about this, don't we? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his what? Righteousness alone. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That's another song we sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. You either belong to the first Adam or the last. To the first Adam by God's imputation or from the last by God's imputation. Yeah, but what about Moses? I guess we should read these verses and then we've got to wrap it up. The law came in. Romans chapter 5 verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Doesn't that bring you back to verse 11? And not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Lies we believe. The first lie we saw today was this. We have a righteousness. Other people don't. We're better than they are. That's a lie. I hope if you have unbelieving friends, you love them. You're kind to them. You show Christ's love for them. You tell them the truth. Our lesbian neighbors, we try to love them more than anybody else on the block because we're not better than they are. Actually, we're probably worse, but we want to love them and tell them the truth. That's the first lie of self-righteousness. The second lie was this. Love and propitiation and wrath, they all go together. It's the love of God and the wrath of God that describes propitiation. And the last one is, somebody was a representative and his name was Adam until Jesus came along and provided representation. 
I think, you know what? I'm sweating now. I'm more tired right now than I was yesterday after 102 miles. Can you imagine God's working? My last comment. Adam sinned. God provided an animal sacrifice and clothed him. One man, one animal. Eve sinned. God gave her a sacrifice of an animal in her place and clothed her. One woman, one sin. You step over here to Exodus chapter 12 and you have Passover and you put the blood over the doorpost for one family. The sin of the family is covered by this one sacrifice. You move to Luke 16 and you have Yom Kippur and you have one sacrifice for the nation and you see the expanding one person, one sacrifice, one family, one sacrifice, one nation, one sacrifice. And then you move to the New Testament and we close with this. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Sin of the world, Jew and Gentile. 